ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 8th of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Advocates for children with disability hope recommendations from the review into the National Disability Insurance Scheme to set up better and earlier interventions will become a reality. A thorough inquiry of the scheme was released yesterday. It recommends a separate foundational scheme be set up outside the NDIS in mainstream schools and early childcare to support children with developmental delays and mild autism. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. In the western Queensland town of Longreach, Leanne Kohler is raising her 12-year-old son, Jacob, who has Down syndrome. We did baby boot camp with Jacob from about six months on. We then went away and did intensive speech therapy. So we worked really hard at making sure Jacob was well-situated to be in the class. Not necessarily the academic in the class, but in the class. It's those supports which the family accessed outside the NDIS that have helped set Jacob up for success. Those services are absolutely critical, especially if you want them to get into mainstream schools and be part of that class. Now, a report from the NDIS review has echoed that sentiment. It's calling for more money to be directed to mainstream health and education for children with developmental delays. But at the moment, getting those services is financially impossible for many families. Either that or they get stuck on lengthy waiting lists. Sarah O'Doherty is a practising psychologist in Sydney and president of the Australian Association of Psychologists. What we need to see is more funding for those initial assessments and early interventions so that it's not going to just be for people who can afford out of pocket those assessments and interventions prior to then be allocated the NDIS package. Sarah O'Doherty says the earlier any concerns are identified, the better the outcome. The earlier we can um, support children to have, first of all, an appropriate assessment and diagnosis and then have access to the kinds of supports that they need, they are then going to have much more of a likelihood of being able to have a a life that is valuable and meaningful to them. And that support can come in many forms. And so this might include things like early intervention in mental health support, but also early intervention into things like occupational therapy, movement, speech. It's something Jay Weatherall, the director of the Mindaroo Foundation's Thrive by Five, has long campaigned for. I mean, this review confirms what we've been saying for some time and not just us, but parents, educators, experts, that just too many children with disabilities and developmental delays are missing out on the benefits of early childhood education. The NDIS Review's authors are calling for the recommendations to be implemented over the next five years. The government says it'll release its full response next year. Elizabeth Cramsey reporting. Bill Shorten is the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme and he joined me earlier. Bill Shorten, the review says all the recommendations work together. Basically, they can't be cherry-picked. You'll have to come up with some solid reasons if you reject any of them, won't you? Well, I think that 
the review sets out the direction. One of the things which we will do is as we talk to people about the review, there might be wrinkles raised. So I wouldn't want to give 100% absolute that everything here is exactly as is, is what's going to be because we've still got to test these things aloud with the world and with people with disability. But I completely support the direction of the review. Most Australians do want the National Disability Insurance Scheme to work. Is this the last shot to really fix it? Do you concede if large cost blowouts continue that that's going to erode public support for it? Well, I'm probably a bit more positive than whether or not it's the last shot. The reality is that most Australians, as you say, do want the scheme to work because it is changing lives, but it needs to work better. So, you know, I'm a glass half full sort of person. I think that doing nothing is not an acceptable option. So therefore, this is a good plan and let's work together and iron out any issues which arise. But this is good for people and it's um, good for the future. The review says diagnosis alone won't guarantee access to individual support packages in the future. Many parents will be a little bit anxious about that. Can you guarantee that no one will be taken off the NDIS until this new foundational scheme, a second support scheme, is ready to go? you could have your package increased or decreased right now. So when you say guarantee no change at all, there's change every day. What I can guarantee, which I think does go to the heart of the matter, is that if your child needs the supports which only the NDIS can provide, then that's what they'll get. But this review also suggests a second support scheme be set up in mainstream schools and childcare centres. That's not something that's going to happen in a matter of weeks or months. Oh, no, no. And no one's... I would definitely say to parents, this will be a case of hastening slowly, listening to people. We'll have to assemble the workforce. We've got to do a lot of talking with the states and indeed other departments of the Commonwealth. So nothing happens overnight. But when you say there's this one scheme and another scheme, I don't want to confuse people. Disabilities is on a continuum. Some people have very severe and profound disability. For them, it would be the NDIS. What the reviews identified is that there needs to be services for people with um, disabilities which aren't as severe or as permanent. So this is not so much creating a second scheme as completing the fence or uh, making sure that there is a universal system of support for people with disability, not just the NDIS. People with Disability Australia is worried that it's going to create something of a location lottery where services are available everywhere but not consistent. And, in fact, that they may not be available everywhere. How do you avoid that? That's going to be really tricky, isn't it? Especially when workforce is hard to find right now. We already have a location lottery. What we're trying to do is actually increase what the safety net covers. The issue about reforming the NDIS is important. It's about making sure that every dollar gets through to the people for whom the scheme was designed. It's about making sure that there's more equity. This review is aimed at tackling the inequity of the current location lottery. So the general problem you make, that you point to, I should say, about thin markets, there's a lack of services, lack of workforce. That's the problem right now, not just in disability. What we want to do is uh, make sure through alternative commissioning, through not recognising that the market isn't working as it was meant to, there's plenty of recommendations here how we improve support in the regions and how we tackle what you correctly identify as a location lottery, but that exists right now.
Mm. The scheme doesn't seem to be working well for those with psychosocial issues. There's a sentence in the review that really stands out. It says the NDIS is not stewarding the market to deliver a recovery-focused approach. Mm. My reading of it, it's not focused on getting people well. What's your commitment to ending that? Well, the fact that you're reading from the review shows that we've identified that problem and that's our commitment. There's been a couple of um, mischievous rumours put out. One is that there's some plan to make sure that people who have disabilities arising from psychosocial disorders would no longer be covered by the scheme. That's not right. They will be. What we're looking at, though, is going down the path of what we call the recovery model, more early intervention for people with psychosocial disorders so that we can support exactly what you just said. You mentioned yesterday that some people had become NDIS millionaires out of this. How many providers have become millionaires, do you know? No, I couldn't give you a last, down to the last decimal point, but I am concerned. And I think many Australians are concerned that some of the money, which is going from the taxpayer to participants with profound and severe disability, gets siphoned off by some service providers, some of whom are unregistered, uh, where they are making a mozza and getting triple, double-digit returns, delivering um, outcomes which aren't as good as they should be or over-servicing, or in some cases under-servicing, or in other cases just plain old-fashioned fraud. That ends under you? Oh, yeah. The people who've moved into this world thinking there's an easy buck without thinking about people with disability first, they'd be well advised to sell their businesses tomorrow. Bill Shorten, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you. Bill Shorten is the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Intense fighting continues in the Gaza Strip as Israel battles Hamas militants in the major cities. Israeli military is now deep into the city of Han Yunus in southern Gaza, a place civilians in the north had previously been told to flee to. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons joined me a short time ago from Jerusalem. Well, Sabra, yet again, civilians are caught sort of unawares in a lot of this. There was a sense that the fighting had tended to stop in the north. The Israeli army had put out a statement a couple of days ago saying they had secured the north. Now they're involved in, you know, some of these sort of pretty ferocious fights. The Jabalia refugee camp, for example, it's believed there's about 100,000 or so people who are still in and around that camp who haven't left. So they're obviously being caught in the middle of this fighting now. And in terms of the South, Khan Yunus, of course, we know that a large number of the population of Gaza has pushed to the South to try to get away from the first few weeks of the the ground war. And so they're being caught in it too. It sort of reinforces what many of the aid groups have been telling us, that there's just nowhere to get away from this in Gaza. The United Nations says a second crossing into Gaza might be open soon, bringing in much-needed aid. What more can you tell us about that? Well, the key crossing really for aid would be the Kerem Shalom crossing, which goes from Israel into Gaza. Until now, for the last eight weeks of this war, the Israelis have not wanted to open that. So all of the aid, or the little of the aid that has come in, has come in through the Rafa crossing, 
from Egypt into Gaza. Now, the United Nations is saying now that they believe there's a good chance that they're going to be able to convince the Israelis to open up that Kerem Shalom crossing, which will make bringing aid in much quicker because it can be scanned much quicker by the Israelis rather than them having to do it via the Rafah crossing in Egypt. So in an otherwise grim story, there is this slight sort of glimmer of hope. And the war has taken a personal and tragic turn for one member of Israel's war cabinet, Gadi Eisenkot. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that's right. Uh, Gadi Eisenkot is a military legend in Israel. He's a former chief of staff of the Israeli Defence Forces. He's a huge figure in this country where I am. Um, and he's also one of the people who Benjamin Netanyahu has put onto the war cabinet. Uh, the Israeli Defence Forces announced a short time ago that his son, uh, Gal, had been killed in northern Gaza as part of the various uh, the fighting going on there. His son was a medic um, and 25 years, years old. And it just sort of brings it home just how close this is to even members of the war cabinet. And on the other side, of course, the Palestinians, the Gazan Ministry of Health has just announced in the last few hours that the death toll of Gazans has just passed 17,000. So yet again, the tragedy is hitting both sides of this. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons. The global technology giant Cisco says cyber attacks engineered by artificial intelligence are becoming more frequent and a greater risk to critical infrastructure. As we've seen with hacks on Optus and Medibank private, attacks are becoming more sophisticated. The exposure means corporations, government departments and agencies are on constant alert. Cisco's global vice president and head of security, J2 Patel, says currently the cyber criminals are winning the war. Mr Patel speaking here with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. The complexity of managing the security infrastructure is getting to be so high that if you don't do this, then you actually put corporations at risk, critical infrastructure at risk. And as the complexity has gone up, the sophistication of the adversary that creates an attack has gone up quite a bit. It used to be that there were college student hackers that used to be um, the uh, attackers. And now you see nation states. They're connected more. There's trillions of devices that are connected to the internet. So when you talk about critical infrastructure, you mean the obvious targets like aviation, air traffic control, shipping or trains. But do you also mean life and death services that we might take for granted? Not just transport. You know, poor security practices can cost lives. If you start thinking about it, I would not be able to get a kidney dialysis done if the hospital got breached, if I had kidney failure. And it's security itself is considered critical infrastructure, whether it be the financial system, whether it be the water system and utility companies, whether it be the power grid, whether it be the transportation system, the healthcare system, so on and so forth. Here in Australia, we recently had a nationwide outage with our second biggest telco, Optus. Now, that wasn't a cyber attack, but it does show how a single outage can have a cascading impact with wide-reaching consequences. The addressable market for security is 8 billion humans because every human on the planet 
is going to some in some way, shape, or form be connected, and is therefore going to have the risk of having their identity stolen, the risk of having credentials being compromised. And I think the industry has done a pretty bad job of making it too complicated. That most people, most normal, you know, day-to-day folks, average citizens, find it to be overwhelming and intimidating. And what we have to do is democratize security and make it simple enough for everyone to use to protect themselves. With cyber attacks now an ever-present risk, is it clear that artificial intelligence is being used in attacks from the normal bad actors or hostile nations? I think artificial intelligence is not only driving the attacks, but it's also going to help in preventing the attacks. So in order to deal with the increased level of attacks that you see in the market right now, you have to deal with that at machine scale. You can't deal with it at human scale. You know, as they say, you can't take people to a security war. You have to take machines. And so the defenses for security are going to be all based on data and artificial intelligence. But we've always talked about there being an asymmetry between the defender and the attacker. And the advantage has always gone to the attacker because they have to be right once uh, and the defender has to be right every single time. This is the first time I'd say in my professional career that I can see a future. We're not quite there yet, but I can see a future where the scales will be tipped in the favor of the defender because the defender will have a data advantage. So to the big question, who's winning the cyber war at the moment? The good guys or the bad guys? Oh, the bad guys are winning. Today, categorically, the bad guys are winning. That's top Cisco security executive, J2 Patel, and he's speaking with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. The National Phone Service for people experiencing family, domestic or sexual violence will have a significant change from today, one that experts hope will save lives. Until now, people wanting to contact the 1800 Respect Service had to call the number and speak with someone. From today, they'll also have the choice to send a text to the number. Here's political reporter Noor Haydar. 1800 Respect launched as a 24-7 phone and online counselling service more than a decade ago in an effort to reduce violence against women and children. Until now, people had to call. But from today, a more discreet option will be available. Here's the Social Services Minister, Amanda Rishworth. It will allow more women access to the support services offered by 1800 Respect, many who may not feel comfortable using the phone service or the online chat will now be able to access support. Those who text the service will first receive an automated response with safety information before being linked to a counsellor. The government says a soft launch over the past fortnight has proven its value. One powerful example was one user had lost their voice due to strangulation at a previous time and was unable to speak. So using the SMS capability, they were able to seek support to get emergency accommodation. Domestic Family and Sexual Violence Commissioner Michaela Cronin says it's a welcome innovation. Regional and rural Communities need greater access where there aren't services around there. I also think that being able to text is sometimes... People are able to communicate in a way that they're not if they have to actually speak to someone. 58 women have died violently in Australia this year, according to the Counting Dead Women initiative. That includes six women allegedly killed by a man known to them in South Australia last month. The alleged murders have prompted calls for a royal commission in that state. Here's Commissioner Cronin again. 
I've spoken to many people in South Australia recently and there is a great deal of pain and awareness that they need to really come together to drive change and to think about how that happens. Whether or not it's a Royal Commission or another mechanism, I would hope that it really does galvanise significant change and investment in the state. Arman Abrahimzadeh is the co-founder of the Zara Foundation. He established the support service with his sisters after his mum was murdered by his dad in 2010. He says a royal commission is needed to comprehensively review the state's services and systems. I believe if a royal commission is established, that it will highlight where the gaps are and what sort of investment is needed if we are serious as a society in in tackling this issue and reducing these tragedies and hopefully in the long term eliminating them from our society. The SA government says it's considering the calls. The Premier will meet with advocates and sector leaders next week. Nor Haydar reporting and that new text number is 0458 737 732. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. When the World Health Organization demanded China pass over detailed information on an outbreak of respiratory illnesses last month, there was an uncomfortable sense of deja vu. It's clear now it's a winter surge in illness rather than a new pathogen. But are we really prepared for the next pandemic? Today, Professor of Global Biosecurity, Rhina McIntyre, whether we are and what it might look like. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.